You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce... Our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is historian Jeff Seschel. He has written books that I believe are at the top rank, not only of 60s history, obviously, but a terrific book on Franklin Roosevelt and his court packing. Jeff, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jeff is a Rhodes Scholar, and he received his master's degree from Oxford University in 1993. He is a comic strip artist. Is that the right word? That'll work. That'll work. Not everybody thinks it's an art, but uh, let's go with that. (laughs) He is a former speechwriter for President Bill Clinton, and he was recruited by President Clinton after the president read what I think, in my opinion, is the, the best book on 60s politics, and that is called Mutual Contempt, and it's about the relationship between Lyndon Baines Johnson and Robert Francis Kennedy. Jeff, let's jump right into it. It's very nice of you to agree to get President Clinton on the podcast. We'd love to talk to him. <laughs> Thank you. Working on it. What's it like, before we get into your book, I want to talk just for a few minutes about your career. What's it like when the President of the United States says, hey, I read your book? Well, I, it's like bolt from the blue um, in the best sense. I went down to my mailbox one morning. I was living on Capitol Hill where I'd been writing the book and I was drawing that comic strip that you mentioned. And I found in, in my mailbox a heavy cardboard bag envelope that for the return address, it simply said the White House. And every once in a while, you know, you get those fundraising letters from one party or another, and and they'll stamp something like that on there. But I could tell that this was not that. This felt, you know, substantial. And so I opened it up and there was a a little handwritten note card that simply said the president at the top embossed. And and he said some nice things about this book, about mutual contempt. And I certainly never thought anything else was going to come of it. I framed it. I told my family and friends about it. And then I got a phone call a couple of weeks later from the chief speechwriter who's said that he said, as you know, the president's read your book and we happen to have an opening for a speechwriter. You want to come talk about it? And I did. I certainly did. And I wound up starting work there a couple months later, worked uh, for almost the, the full second term. 
Are there other speech writers for, for other presidents who you talked to before taking this gig? I think, you know, Ted Sorensen, obviously, is probably the famous. I think he's probably the famous, most famous presidential speech writer of all time who wrote for uh, Kennedy, I guess, along with Peggy Noonan, who was famous speech writer for President Reagan. But did you get a chance to talk to anyone and say, what am I getting myself into? I did. I did, in fact, talk to Ted Sorensen. I was lucky to have gotten to know him a little bit when I was working on this book, on, on the book about Kennedy and Johnson, because he's a character in this book, as maybe we'll discuss. So he was very kind to, to give me some advice. And I also talked to someone else I'd gotten to know and working on the book, Arthur Schlesinger, the historian who was not, mm. uh, he was not called a speechwriter. That wasn't his title in the Kennedy White House, but he certainly worked on speeches and got some, some advice from him as well. And I plunged in and I, I spent the next three years there. Is there a presidential speech you admire particularly? Presidential speech. Well, One there, or are, two. there are many, certainly many that I admire. I'm a big admirer, as many people are, people of both parties, of Franklin Roosevelt's speeches. And I think that his arsenal of democracy speech he is beginning the process of educating the American public about the threat from Germany and why they need, even though they are an ocean away, why we need to, to care and why we need to get engaged. It's such a perfect example of Roosevelt never underestimating the intelligence of, of the American people, really speaking to them as a friend, speaking to them as an equal, and bringing them along in what he knows is going to be an uphill battle to get the United States to engage in this, this conflict in Europe. Uh, so there are many Roosevelt speeches I could mention, but that's a big standout for me. And if you're a speechwriter, again, of, of either party, and I know uh, plenty of Republican speechwriters who feel the same way, there is no finer piece of speechwriting than President Kennedy's inaugural address. Many other Kennedy speeches I could mention, but as a piece of writing, it's hard to imagine even a single phrase being improved. It is, an, it is a work of precision, of elegance, and of, of tremendous power. I love the phrase in, I, I think I'm going to try, I'm going to get this right. And if I don't, you correct me. The phrase in Franklin Roosevelt's war message, which I think what, that's December 8th of 41 after Pearl Harbor, where he uses the words, the American people and their righteous might will see through or win through to absolute victory. And that, that use of the term righteous might, mm -hmm, whoever mm -hmm. wrote that, and obviously, as you know, Franklin Roosevelt was heavily involved in his speeches. It I sure would just was. like to give them a big kiss because <laughs> that is that is perfectly phrased. Not only do we have the power, but we also have the power to win for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. And I just think whoever that that's given how angry the country was, how angry the Americans were, and FDR himself, right? Mm -hmm. Whoever came up with that particular term a phrase deserves all the accolades he or she can get. Well, now I'm going to go try to figure that out. I, I don't know who wrote that line. Certainly Roosevelt's most significant speechwriter was a guy named Sam Rosenman, who was a federal judge that Roosevelt got to know in New York and coined the phrase the New Deal and was very, very involved in almost every significant Roosevelt speech. But there were a bunch of, of other writers as well who were involved. I try to ask this question of people who were actually doing what popular culture portrays or or attempts to portray. So how accurate is the TV show, The West Wing, since you worked, I'm assuming, in The West Wing? Well, you know, we we don't talk quite as fast in the actual West Wing as they do on that show. And they do a lot <laughs> more walking, really, than I think any of us did. Endlessly walking and talking. Uh, we did a little bit more sitting and talking. But that being said, I think it was a pretty, it got the gist of it pretty right. It got the feel of it pretty right. They spent a lot of time, I'm not sure everybody knows this, but when they began work on that show, 
that's when President Clinton was was in office. And they began to turn up at the White House. Uh, the actors, Schiff and Rob Lowe and Allison Janney and others, would you'd go to a meeting, communication suite, for example, in the West Wing, and there was Allison Janney and, 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 and Rob Lowe. And they were kind of making the rounds and talking to their real-life counterparts. And because I was a speechwriter, and that's what Rob Lowe was doing in the show, I wound up uh, having a couple long conversations with him about what life was like as uh, as a speechwriter in that White House. They were really trying to, it's not that they didn't embroider, it's not that they didn't improve, they certainly <laughs> did. It's, they also, I would add, they highly glamorized. I wish that, for example, there's an episode, maybe you remember this, they, they, they were coming back, Martin Sheen and, and the whole team coming back from State of the Union address. And as they were returning from the Capitol to the White House, they were being announced in the East Room as they entered. And the announcer, whoever he was supposed to be, said, and ladies and gentlemen, here's the man who wrote the State of the Union address, Sam Seaborn. And everybody erupts in applause at, at Rob Lowe. I will tell you, nothing <laughs> like that ever happened. Um, but the, beyond well, David, that, David Frum, remember David Frum, yeah. who came up with the axis of evil. Mm-hmm. He, there was that was controversial in the fact that he was as a speechwriter, quote unquote, outed for lack of a better term, and it seemed like that was just something you don't do. Speechwriters were for a good long time, with a few exceptions. You named a couple: Ted Sorensen, Peggy Noonan. Generally, supposed to be neither seen nor nor heard. There, there was a feeling, and this was certainly the case in, in the Clinton White House, that if you were out there publicly talking about the speech that you just wrote, it diminished the fact mm-hmm. that somebody else, namely the president, just delivered it. And <laughs> So I'm, I'm a little old fashioned in that work. I think that generally should still be the case. But I think we're in a different world now and speechwriters are known and they tweet and they are kind of sometimes celebrities in their own right. And, and maybe that's just fine. But it's not the way that we did think. I guess we should also mention as a terrific speechwriter and an absolute maestro with a written word who went on to do other things. And that would be William Sapphire, speechwriter yes. for Nixon, who's brilliant, brilliant commentary. So let's get to your book as a Republican, which I am. Nearly all of the time, right, Spangle? I love politics reading about politics of the other party. And one of the reasons is, is because, you know, I know a lot of Democrats who think Republicans have their act together, mostly. And a lot of Republicans who think the Democrats have their act together, like, you know, they always win. They are always fighting. They're always united. And to read a book like Mutual Contempt, I was born in 67, so I don't remember that time period, obviously. And to realize how these great men all existed at the same place at the same time, many with the same goals and ambitions, and you would think are all pulling in the same direction and helping their fellow D's, their fellow Democrats, you know, as Republicans say we do as well. And to find out that, well, that could possibly be the case anecdotally, it may not be the case strategically. I always say that, and I've said this, you know, I've written many speeches and do public relations and done a lot of political work. I used to write for Mike Pence back when he was governor of Indiana and a lot of other politicos that if you want to see real feuds, they're not between Republicans and Democrats. They're within the party, the blood feuds that last for decades. So with that somewhat long-winded introduction, what led you to write this book and what surprised you about the subjects or the subjects, the persons 
while you were writing the book? Well, in a way, what, what led me to write the book is, is a realization along exactly these lines. It was a realization that despite the fact that they were on the same team, that they were members of the same administration, that in fact, they were fierce rivals. I hadn't been aware of that. I was born a couple of years after you. I missed this whole thing too. And as I was growing up and reading about the Kennedys, and I was fascinated by this era, again, I just somehow never ran across the fact that these two in particular, Lyndon Johnson and Robert Kennedy, were so fiercely at odds. It was only when I was in college and a collection of Robert Kennedy's oral histories was just released. They had been sealed since, you know, he did these interviews back in the 1960s and they had opened them up in 88 and they put them on the cover of Newsweek and they released this big volume and there was a lot of play and a lot of press. And there were quotes from Robert Kennedy describing Lyndon Johnson, and this is verbatim, as mean, bitter, vicious, and animal in many ways. And then as I continued reading, I found that Lyndon <laughs> Johnson had, had said much the same or worse about Robert Kennedy. And I was intrigued by this. And I, I went digging through some of the memoir literature of that period to try to understand what was going on between these two. And as I found, there was a lot going on between the two of them. And it wasn't just a personal rivalry. It wasn't just a political rivalry, but it was an intense disagreement about some of the biggest issues that were facing the country at the time. What was happening in the cities, the so-called problem of the cities and the war on poverty. And of course, the, the war in Vietnam. And, and so it was a substantive policy argument as well between the two, after the death of President Kennedy in Dallas in 1963, these were the two most powerful politicians in the country. They were both Democrats. They were both for a period of time, members of the Kennedy administration, and then briefly the Johnson administration. And yet they were at odds. And ultimately this culminates, as we know, not to get ahead of the story, but it culminates in Robert Kennedy in 1968, challenging Johnson to try to oust him from the presidency. And so I wanted to understand this story and I wanted to understand whether it mattered. And the deeper I got into it, the more that I felt that it did matter and it matters still. It's interesting that you say that about Johnson being an animal. There's a very short clip on YouTube where Richard Nixon is being interviewed by Patrick Buchanan. And if you look it up, it says, I don't know if you've seen it. It says like Nixon uncensored or something. It's only uh, really like a minute or two long. And Buchanan brings up Caro's, Robert Caro's biography, like the, one of the latest volumes had just come out. And Buchanan's like, because it's off camera, right? So, you know, they're at a commercial break or whatever. Buchanan says something about the book and Nixon goes, Buchanan goes something like, he just comes off as this wild man. And Nixon goes, well, he was an animal, goddammit. What do you expect? Or something <laughs> like that. Like, says the exact same thing that you just no said. No kidding. No kidding. What is it? Let's talk about LBJ's personality for just a minute, because I want to really start back in the 50s in the Senate, because I'm sure that's where a lot of this. But you've mentioned him, him personally. What's your take on Lyndon Johnson? You know, he died in, I think, January of 73. He started out as president via this unspeakable tragedy. He won a colossal landslide in 64 is famous for several social and civil rights acts and pieces of legislation. And then it just all went to hell where it went to hell in a jungle. And I don't think I'm exaggerating. What's your take on the circumstances that led Robert Kennedy and Eugene McCarthy, we should say, to challenge Lyndon Johnson in 68? Well, it was the war. A absent the war, none of the other conflicts would have possibly led at least Robert Kennedy to challenge LBJ. And it's hard to imagine 
imagine that McCarthy would have would have done the same either. The war was the central reality of, of American life at that point. And Robert Kennedy, it's harder to speak for, for McCarthy's thinking. McCarthy had a bit of a messianic streak himself and a, a moral a moral streak. Robert Kennedy might have been accused of both of those things. But ultimately, Robert Kennedy looked at the course of the war in Vietnam, a war that he believed to the depths of his soul that his brother never would have waged. And, you know, we can all argue about whether that would have been the case. But that is certainly Robert Kennedy's deep belief is that his brother never would have gone in in the way that, that Lyndon Johnson did. And seeing what it's doing to the country, seeing what it's doing to America's standing internationally, seeing what it's doing to the, the people of Vietnam and believing not unreasonably that he might be the only American who could step in and stop this from happening because he was the only American conceivably who could beat Lyndon Johnson. And even then he knew that that was a huge long shot and he resisted that choice for quite a long time. That's why McCarthy got in. Other people gave up on Robert Kennedy. The anti-war advocates in the country felt that Robert Kennedy was looking out for himself politically and wasn't going to get in. And so ultimately that is the calculus. And we can talk more in detail about it. I don't want to get too far ahead in our chronology here, but, and, but and Kennedy felt guilty. He, he Robert felt, Kennedy felt guilty that he didn't get in first, felt a little because McCarthy jammed him with it. He did. He did. I mean, he felt that he had made a mistake. I mean, he knew Robert Kennedy understood because he'd been paying attention the preceding few years that if he got in, he would be accused of being nothing but a selfish opportunist and that he would be accused of ripping apart the Democratic Party for his own political gain. And so he hung back. And his hope was that since McCarthy did go ahead and get in first, that when Kennedy finally got in, he wouldn't be accused of all of these things. He was all the same, <laughs> accused by McCarthy, among others. And, you know, so there was there was no way for for Robert Kennedy to win with with some some Democrats. So as we're both history, you're a historian. So as a history buff, let's make sure that I don't get too far jacked up in the chronology. John F. Kennedy is elected to the Senate, I think, in 52 the first time. Is that yep. right? That's right. Same year, Richard Nixon becomes vice president. So Johnson is not yet majority leader. Does, does that happen in 54? 54. That's right. So the Kennedy, Kennedy, Johnson dynamic dynamic really begins in the 50s in the Senate, where Lyndon Johnson is clearly the second most powerful person in the country. I think that's a fair thing to say, even more than the speaker, certainly more than Richard Nixon as vice president. Maybe he's not more powerful than Curtis LeMay, but, you know, we'll have to talk that in, in another <laughs> podcast. Is that where the animus developed? Or were there some sort of, of, of friendship there among the three men? Well, I think it's it's first important to differentiate a little bit because the relationship between Lyndon Johnson and John Kennedy was never a poisonous relationship. There was a rivalry there. Sometimes there was tension there. We'll talk about that. But the relationship between Johnson and Robert Kennedy was very different. Although at the beginning, to your point, they were all coexisting on Capitol Hill. Kennedy was a newly elected senator, as you said. Lyndon Johnson was really the, the the most powerful person on Capitol Hill. And as you said, I think it's fair to say that during the Eisenhower years, Johnson was certainly the most, second most powerful person in the country. Absolutely. Robert Kennedy, for, for a number of, the, of those years, was either a campaign staffer, a manager on behalf of his brother, or a Hill staffer working on one committee or another on a couple of different things. And Johnson was a titan. It was Johnson's Capitol Hill. And John Kennedy um, had a respect for LBJ. He saw it, it, not just the fact that Lyndon Johnson was powerful, but understood 
what it took for him to exert that kind of influence over a lot of other extremely powerful people, over a lot of other extremely ambitious people. John Kennedy had an appreciation for Johnson's legislative mastery and his personal mastery of other human beings, what it took for him to lead them and pull them along and push them around. Robert Kennedy, it's not that he didn't see that, but he certainly didn't appreciate it. Robert Kennedy was looking out for his brother. And and as the conversation began to to move toward the presidency and future ambitions of of both of these politicians, JFK and, and LBJ, to RFK, Lyndon Johnson was potentially in the way. And if he wouldn't help John Kennedy, then he was an obstacle to John Kennedy. And so the tension starts to develop there. And Robert Kennedy simply, he was a different personality than his brother. He felt things more more strongly. He tended to see things in those years in, in blacks and whites. John Kennedy had a more nuanced understanding of human beings. But Robert Kennedy at that time, it was right and wrong. It was good and evil. It was black and white. And Lyndon Johnson was, was in the way. And Johnson also, being a politician and, and being Lyndon Johnson, Johnson made Robert Kennedy a lot of promises over those years promises that he didn't keep. He was dishonest. He was disingenuous. And and Robert Kennedy had a a strong, I described Gene McCarthy as a moralist. Well, Robert Kennedy certainly was as well. And so there were a lot of demerits mounting as far as uh, he was concerned through the remainder of the 1950s. Robert Kennedy famously or infamously worked for Joseph McCarthy, who was who was a friend or certainly supported by the Kennedy's father, Joseph Kennedy. What does that say about Robert Kennedy years later? And did he regret that? Did it shape his outlook on politics and in life at all? He did regret that. And in fact, he regretted it pretty early on. I mean, what's interesting about Robert Kennedy as a young man on that committee who signed on partly because there was that family relationship that you described, partly because the Kennedys were strong anti-communists and McCartney for all, McCarthy for all of his excesses was, you know, seen as a pretty strong anti-communist. That's what this was all about. Robert Kennedy learned pretty quickly that McCarthy was a demagogue and a liar and not to be trusted. And so he he quit that committee and he ultimately wound up joining the other side. And so, uh, you know, I think that's a pretty early sign of the regret that he felt. But the Kennedys had a very tricky relationship with McCarthy. And it's often been noted that, that John F. Kennedy was not a profile in courage when it came to McCarthy either. And that when McCarthy was ultimately censured, John Kennedy abstained. He, he was out of the uh, Capitol having his, I, I think, ha- one of his operations uh, on his back. But he certainly could have let his views be known. Um, he was just really trying to dodge the issue. We don't think much of 1960 being an, an historic election the way it was thought of then in this context, the Kennedys being Catholic, John F. Kennedy being Catholic. Now, you know, the, there's the famous saying that were you born in a barn used to be an insult. And now it's like, can you run for office? Right. That seems to have been something at the same time. Oh, you're Catholic. We can't, you know, we can't deal with that. And now, you know, especially I think since Reagan Democrats were basically Catholics, that's changed the dynamic of it. But the point is, as 1960 was certainly a watershed election in many ways, but we don't think as much about the Catholicism aspect of it. How did Robert Kennedy help his brother navigate that issue in the 1960 campaign? 
Well, well, first, I'd say that you're absolutely right. I think it's a sign of uh, success on the part of Catholic Americans more broadly, but but on, on the part of the Kennedys more specifically, that we don't see that today as the accomplishment that it was, that many thought that it was simply impossible for a Catholic to win. It had never happened before. And it was a big issue during the, the campaign. And in fact, there were some supporters, uh, ministers and others who were supporting Nixon, who made a huge public issue out of Kennedy's Catholicism and said that he'd be taking orders from the Pope and that he would have a higher loyalty to the to the Vatican than he would to the U.S. Constitution and, and all the rest of it. This was a, a very real issue and Kennedys were very nervous about it. They made a decision during the campaign that they would have to tackle it head on, that they couldn't simply wish it away or, or, or dodge it, but they were going to have to come right out and address it. And certainly Robert Kennedy was of that view. So when John F. Kennedy gave his landmark speech to a group of ministers gathered in Houston to really make plain where his ultimate loyal loyalties lay and where he saw his responsibility as a potential president. Robert Kennedy was certainly um, instrumental in that in that strategy. It was very much part of that decision making process. The 1960 Democratic Convention was notable for the fact that you had a future president, John Kennedy, a future vice president, Hubert Humphrey, a future president, Lyndon Johnson. It was a real meeting. They were all throwing their hat in the ring, as Teddy Roosevelt would said. The 1960 Convention, Johnson, and correct my history on this, Johnson really starts to make his play for the presidency then. Exactly. Johnson had been sort of lying in wait, not so secretly. People were aware that he was doing this, but Johnson knew that he... So this is really the moment when primaries become a thing and they weren't everything, but they were increasingly a big thing. And and Johnson knew that he was going to have a tough time competing, that he couldn't build the kind of organization that Kennedy had built around the country and that he was going to have a, a difficult time competing outside of his own region. You know, of course, Johnson was from Texas. And so his view was that he would sit back and let Johnson and Humphrey, I'm sorry, let Kennedy and Humphrey fight it out in the primaries, weaken each other, bloody each other, and then Johnson, who would be running the show on Capitol Hill all this time, racking up accomplishments as he always did, that he would swoop in at the last moment at the convention and say, I'm I'm your man. And this was very much the Johnson strategy. He had advisors who thought it was a terrible strategy and said, you got to get in there and compete. You're becoming irrelevant. But this, he held fast to this idea. So as the convention approached, Johnson began to make his move. And he recognized that he was out of the conversation and that in fact, it hadn't worked out the way that he expected it to, that Kennedy was emerging from the primaries dominant, not bloodied by, by Humphrey. And so wresting the nomination away uh, from, from JFK was going to be extremely difficult. So he started to badmouth Kennedy, whispering rumors about it, some of which actually happened to be true, and, and also throwing his weight behind Adley Stevenson, who had been the Democrats nominee in 52, 56, lost famously and substantially to Eisenhower both times. And despite all that, Stevenson thought maybe he would give it another go in 1960. And so Johnson was throwing his weight behind Stevenson as a stop Kennedy movement and then imagined that he would come in behind that and heal the, the, the party. So if you want to look for the most proximate source of Robert Kennedy's bitterness against Lyndon Johnson, this is where it happens. Yes, there were rumblings in the 1950s. Yes, there was a rivalry in the 50s. But this is the moment when Robert Kennedy really decides that Lyndon Johnson is beyond redemption. And this is the moment when Lyndon Johnson makes the same decision about Robert Kennedy. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We're talking with author, historian, 
presidential speechwriter Jeff Seschel about his book and its terrific Mutual Contempt, Lyndon Johnson, Robert Kennedy, and the Feud That Defined a Decade, Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr., one of the most famous and influential historians in American history, called Mutual Contempt, quote, the most gripping political book of recent years. I've read it and I've actually gifted several copies to friends of mine, all Democrats, but uh, Jeff's not going to hold that uh, against me as I hang out with my fellow history friends. Uh, we just finished discussing the 1960 convention. John F. Kennedy emerged the victor. The 1960 campaign, does Kennedy win? Does John F. Kennedy win without, I won't ask you if he doesn't win without Richard Daly, because that's just too, that's too bitter of a question. <laughs> but I asked that of, you know, Mark Updegrove, who wrote the mm -hmm. recent book. Anyway, yeah. he was just on my podcast a couple weeks ago, and I couldn't resist asking him that question. But for the purposes of this interview, does John F. Kennedy win the 1960 presidential election without Lyndon Johnson as his running mate? I think it's tough for Kennedy to win in 60 without LBJ. I think it's tough for Kennedy to win without Texas. And, and I think the, the math, I think it's it's because he wins in Texas that he could probably afford to lose in Illinois and, and lose uh, despite Daly's uh, support. We'll put it that way. We'll leave that for your other conversation. <laughs> Uh, I, I think that, you know, but I want to backtrack for just a second back to that convention for another moment, because there's another half to the story. So I described what made uh, Robert Kennedy so angry at Lyndon Johnson during that period. And it was it was the rumors that he was spreading about Addison's disease. It was a lot of bitterness that Johnson was spreading about the Kennedys, as well as that attempt to stop the candidacy. But Johnson, too, had a grievance that he never let go for the rest of his life. And it had to do with the offer that JFK made of the vice presidency. Once John F. Kennedy had locked up the nomination, it was time to pick a VP. You'd think he would have figured it out by that point, but he was too focused on getting the nomination to have really made a decision about who he wanted as VP. And there were a number of folks that he was considering, but he was starting to hear from other political leaders that LBJ wanted the right of first refusal, that he wanted the offer, even though it seemed incredible to anyone that Johnson would give up this incredibly powerful position on Capitol Hill to be vice president, which was was historically not a significant position at all. And so Kennedy thought about it and ultimately decided that he needed to, to go ahead and make the offer to, to LBJ. He saw some arguments in favor of putting Johnson on the ticket, but he also saw arguments against it. But ultimately, he didn't think for a second that Johnson would take it. So he went ahead and made the offer to LBJ and was shocked when Johnson said yes and went back up to the Kennedy suite. And they were all staying in the same hotel in LA. And he said to Bobby, he said, you're never going to believe this. He said, yes. And the two of them then spent a couple hours on their own debating whether this was a good thing or a total disaster. And they decided that if they could talk Johnson out of it, that they should do that. That there was going to be unhappiness on the left, that labor was going to be upset about Johnson being on the ticket, that people thought he was a Southern conservative, that it was worth giving it a shot to try to talk him off the ticket. And so Robert Kennedy, as the campaign manager, as the younger brother, gets to be the hatchet man. And he makes a trip to the Johnson suite to try to talk Johnson out of it. Johnson's advisors getting wind that something weird is going on won't let him in. He goes three times to the Johnson suite before he is granted an audience with LBJ. <laughs> and when he it. finally delivers the windup and the pitch that maybe Johnson shouldn't take this on, Johnson being a great actor himself, it tears well up in his eyes. And he says, you know, if the president, he's already referring to JFK as the president, mm -hmm. if the president will make this fight, then I'll, I'll be honored to make this fight 
Kennedyite by his side. And that was it. But the interesting thing is that that Johnson blamed Robert Kennedy. As far as he was concerned, John Kennedy had nothing to do with this. That Robert Kennedy on his own went to the Johnson suite to try to talk his brother's potential VP off the ticket. Anybody who knows anything about the Kennedys and their relationship understands how crazy it would be. I mean, Robert Kennedy was an instrument of his brother. He would never do such a thing if JFK wasn't behind it. But Johnson didn't want to believe this about JFK. And so all the blame by Johnson and the people around him, all of it was directed at Robert Kennedy. That was the original sin as far as Johnson was concerned. And he never forgave Bobby for this. Was it ever discussed between LBJ and JFK? Like, why did you, why did your brother come see me? Or why did you have a change of heart, at least momentarily, about being on the ticket with you? Well, it's a great question. So a call was placed frantically by Johnson's men up to the Kennedy suite to, to ask JFK, is this what's going on here? And they finally reached John F. Kennedy and they said, um, your brother's down here trying to talk Johnson off the ticket. What's going on? And John Kennedy said, Bobby is is out of the loop. He distances mm. himself from something that he knows is going south. And in fact, during this period of time when Robert Kennedy was trying again and again and failing to get into the Johnson suite, JFK continued to have this conversation with his other advisors about whether this was a good or a bad thing that Johnson was on the ticket. And so by the time it's actually happening, JFK has changed his mind back to thinking that, okay, this is actually a pretty good thing. And so when he says Robert Kennedy has been out of touch, it's true. They didn't have cell phones. <laughs> they didn't have pager. Uh, and they had been out of touch for a crucial period of however long. And so that to the Johnson people and to Johnson himself was confirmation that Bobby had done this on his own. Who was Kennedy's second choice or who would have, if Johnson had said, okay, Bobby, I'll step off the ticket, who would the Kennedys going to approach next? He was, he was interested in in Scoop Jackson uh, was somebody that that he considered. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of others that he, that he considered, but he, he he never really settled on a on a second choice because in, in a sense, he had never really settled on a, on a first choice. The Kennedy-Johnson ticket won a razor thin victory in 1960 over the Richard Nixon-Henry Cabot Lock ticket. And what followed was a thousand days of terrific history of whatever you say about Kennedy, President Kennedy, you know, he he did what great leaders do. They get the big things right. Clearly got the big thing right in the Cuban Missile Crisis. The way he responded to the Berlin Wall, I thought was on the money. What he did for the space program, clearly with, without John F. Kennedy as a cheerleader, we never would have landed on the moon on July 20th, 1969. But it also meant that, you know, Perhaps there was a Vito Corleone uh, aspect to the administration. Keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Lyndon Johnson is John F. Kennedy's vice president and Robert F. Kennedy is JFK's attorney general. Take us through how LBJ and RFK coexisted during the Kennedy administration. Not very well is the short answer, how they coexisted. Johnson assumed that he would walk in the door and become the most powerful vice president in history. He he had a history himself of, of taking over positions that were not particularly powerful until LBJ wound up in that position. Majority leader had not. I mean, it's unthinkable to us now because we understand what a big role that is. But prior to Lyndon Johnson becoming majority leader, that was not the power position that he made. It. And there were a couple of others. Uh, 
other positions before that, Johnson had done the same thing. So he imagined that when he became VP, he'd do the same thing. I mean, how could he not? He was Lyndon Johnson. He owned all the relationships on Capitol Hill. JFK didn't particularly. He would be the one he thought who would shoulder the, the president's agenda through the Capitol. And, and so he imagined that he would have quite a substantial role. And pretty quickly, it became clear that this was not that the Kennedys had no interest really in, in giving him that kind of responsibility. He was marginalized immediately. He was given a mostly ceremonial role. And meanwhile, Robert Kennedy as attorney general emerged as was often reported as the second most powerful person in the world, the second most powerful man in Washington, the number two man or the assistant president. He was known by a lot of different names, but everybody understood that attorney general itself is a big job. But Robert Kennedy was involved in almost everything else. And particularly after the Bay of Pigs debacle in April of 1961, Robert Kennedy becomes increasingly involved in foreign policy, which is something that attorneys general don't generally do. And so as Johnson looked around at all the areas where he thought he was going to lead, he saw Robert Kennedy. And meanwhile, Robert Kennedy was the sort of at the social center of Washington. Um, his home at Hickory Hill became the invitation that everybody wanted. And uh, all the the sort of glitterati would, would be invited and would hang out at Hickory Hill and go to the big parties there and go swimming in the pool or throw each other into the pool. And it would all be reported in the society columns. And Johnson generally was not invited. He was he was just completely an outcast. And uh, he would also have it reported to him that at the party, the latest party at Hickory Hill, that people were making up funny songs, belittling Lyndon Johnson or telling cruel jokes about LBJ. So he was really on the outs and, and he was increasingly focused on Robert Kennedy as the source and the center of all of it. And so the, the bitterness that emerged building on what I described at the 1960 convention was profound. It was very deep. Johnson was wounded. He was furious and he blamed it all on Bobby, not on the president. Did they have any confrontations one-on-one or with a group of people? You know, what, what was Bobby Kennedy? 5'10". Lyndon Johnson was six foot four and, and Johnson liked to like to my, my son is six foot seven and he stands next to me just to remind me that he's six foot seven and I'm only six foot one. <laughs> and Lyndon Johnson liked to remind people that he was six foot four by close talking as, as Jerry Seinfeld would say, did they have any sort of confrontations and did John F. Kennedy had to kind of play referee? They did have confrontations. There weren't many, but they were pretty memorable, at least from Johnson's point of view. And while Johnson physically was an intimidating human being, Robert Kennedy just took no crap from anyone. He might've been slight, but he was tough and he had an icy blue stare. He would look Johnson or anyone else in the eye and make clear that he just wasn't having. And so he could not be intimidated. And also in those years, he had all the power. He had the relationship with the president of the United States who happened to be his, his brother. And he was in on everything. And he was needlessly cruel to Johnson during this period. He did not show any particular magnanimity toward, toward LBJ. And so on the rare occasion when Johnson got a meeting with, with President Kennedy, Bobby would often just walk right into the Oval Office and just start talking to JFK as if Johnson wasn't there. He wouldn't acknowledge Johnson. He would just begin the conversation. Humiliating. And, and, and Johnson certainly felt humiliated by that. And they did have some, some confrontations in front of other people about, for example, one element of the Kennedy approach to, to civil rights, so the Equal Opportunity Commission and, and, and what it should be doing. That was an area where Johnson, again, was supposed to be leading and Robert Kennedy sort of walks into the meeting, takes it over and makes clear that he has a contempt for Lyndon Johnson's views. So it was a series of, of ongoing humiliations for, for LBJ, certainly. November 22nd, 1963, John F. Kennedy 
is assassinated in Dallas, Lyndon Johnson's in Lyndon Johnson's home state. How soon after the assassination did Lyndon Johnson and Robert F. Kennedy have a discussion? Did they try to make it work? And why do you think Robert Kennedy left the attorney general's office? I think in 64? Mm-hmm. Was it just an unworkable situation? It was an unworkable situation. And again, the grievances in both directions just continued to mount. And while you could imagine, you would want to imagine that the two of them would come together in this moment of, of national grief, it, it was just not possible. I mean, Robert Kennedy had just lost his brother and lost his hopes for everything that they were going to achieve together in the, the remainder of that administration. They you know, obviously were seeking reelection in 1964. They had a lot more they wanted to do together. And we know now what, what he thought of, of Lyndon Johnson. And Johnson was just not capable, as the expression goes, of getting out of his own way. He, for some reason, decided that he he couldn't take the oath of office after the assassination unless the attorney general, Robert Kennedy, authorized it. And so he got Robert Kennedy on the phone. Robert Kennedy had just, you know, minutes earlier learned that his brother had been killed. And Johnson says, I need to take the oath of office. Can I, can I do that? Or do I, you know, do I need to be in Washington? Do, how do, how do I do this? And Robert Kennedy essentially said, I, I don't know. Talk to my deputy. He'll figure it out. And so Johnson went ahead and talked to the deputy attorney general and found that it was certainly appropriate for him to take the oath of office on the plane. And that's what he did. But as the plane sat on the ground at Love Field with the deceased president's body in the casket and the plane is sitting in the, in the heat and, and the grief and Jackie Kennedy still has, as we know, the president's blood on her on her dress. And, and Johnson is making everybody wait for a judge to arrive at the plane to give him the oath of office. In fact, technically, he's already president. The president, JFK, was dead. Johnson was president. But he wanted to do everything by the book, and he made them wait. And as people complained, he said, Bobby Kennedy told me I need to do this. Now, why did he do that? We understand that it helped him out of a situation if the Kennedy people were complaining, and he pointed to Bobby that that would... You know, be a sufficient answer, but it wasn't true. And it was easily disproven as soon as they talked to Bobby when they got to Washington. And so this became, again, an, another argument between the two of them, followed by a whole series of arguments in those days. And Robert Kennedy agreed to stay on mainly because he wanted to help get the civil rights bill through. And also because he didn't know what he wanted to do with his life, except to get out, to get out of the Johnson administration. So to your second question, why did he get out? He had decided that rather than try to attach himself to, to Lyndon Johnson, either by staying in the administration or perhaps becoming his vice president, that he needed to seek a political future and an identity on his own and decided to run for Senate from New York in 64. Which he won. Which he won. Say. He did. Take us just for a minute or so, as best you can, through the mind of Robert Kennedy, as he realizes this man who, in, in your words, Jeff, he marginalized, he belittled, he humiliated, he embarrassed, is now his boss and president of the United States. What do you think was going through Kennedy's mind about that particular fact? Well, it was it was absolutely, I mean, if it wasn't bad enough that his brother had been murdered, to have Lyndon Johnson as the successor and to hold whatever remaining hopes 
hopes there were for the Kennedy administration to hold those hopes in his hand was to Robert Kennedy a, a pill too too bitter to swallow. And he didn't see the possibility that Johnson would not only see the fulfillment of the rest of that agenda, which he did, but to build on it in dramatic ways, in meaningful, enduring ways that it's unlikely that JFK would have been able to do during a second term. That was too much really for, for Robert Kennedy to admit. But it's also, as the power dynamic inverted, Lyndon Johnson had an opportunity to try to heal the relationship, to try to bring Robert Kennedy on board, to show some trust in him, to show some compassion toward him. But Johnson just couldn't do it. And as I said, he couldn't get out of his own way. And so he was needlessly cruel to Kennedy in the way that Kennedy had been needlessly cruel to him. Johnson seemed to relish twisting the knife in the way that Kennedy had prior to, to what had happened at Dallas. And anytime Lyndon Johnson had an opportunity to make an ally out of Robert Kennedy, he pushed him farther away. And so Robert Kennedy not only had to seek his own political future by seeking that Senate seat, but also once he was in the United States Senate to really carve out his own path rather than a one as a loyal supporter of the Johnson administration. Not that he didn't often support LBJ and the priorities of the Great Society, he did, but he certainly had uh, no attachment to Johnson. In 1968, Lyndon Johnson, who could have run for another term as president, I think it's March. Is it March of 68? Yep. After the New Hampshire primary, March of 68, Lyndon Johnson announces that he is not going to seek, will not seek and will not accept another term nomination of my party as your president. What did Robert Kennedy think of that speech or development? And I think this is actually even maybe perhaps a better question. When Lyndon Johnson gave the speech or made the decision to step down and not seek re-election, did he turn over in his mind, well, damn it, I just made Bobby president? Johnson did. It did occur to, to, to Johnson, certainly, that Robert Kennedy was more likely than anyone else to become president. And there was part of him, and he said it to his advisor, he said, let him wrestle with this stuff. Everybody thinks the Kennedys are, you know, some gift from God. Well, let him as a flesh and blood person take, take over this war and try to solve this. Let him take over, you know, management of the, the war on poverty and the, and the fact that we've got riots in the cities and that people are being killed and buildings are being burned. Let him wrestle with this and we'll see. We'll see if his reputation holds up. So there was part of Johnson that consoled himself by, by recognizing the difficulty that a president Robert Kennedy would be in for. But he certainly saw that possibility. What's interesting about Robert Kennedy's reaction in that moment, and he had he had done more than any individual to bring that moment about, that Robert Kennedy's entering the race was really the last straw for Johnson. There were a bunch of straws, but this was the last one. And when Johnson made that speech that you just quoted from and said he would not, he would not seek renomination, re Kennedy's advisors watching this on TV just began to cheer and whoop and throw things around the room. They were overjoyed. The king was dead. Uh, and Robert Kennedy was, was silent, almost sullen. He alone seemed to recognize how difficult this was going to be from here forward. And that he had, prior to that point, a campaign with a cause. He was running to unseat the president who had brought you the Vietnam War. And now with Johnson out of the race, what was the race about? What was his candidacy about? And in fact, he was adrift for a few days as they tried to figure this out. A sense of 
purpose. What was he running for? Yes, he still there was still a war in Vietnam. It still needed to be brought to an end. But somehow the, the whole dynamic had shifted. And he understood that this was going to be trickier from here forward and that it was going to be harder to rally people against Hubert Humphrey than it was to, to rally them against LBJ. It's really only when Martin Luther King is assassinated four days after Johnson's speech on April 4th of 68 that Robert Kennedy in Indianapolis delivers that extemporaneous speech. And the mean meaning of the, the campaign is refocused and, and reset. He hasn't shifted away from seeking to end the war in Vietnam, but there's more. There's more that he need, knows that he needs to do. On June 5th, 1968, Robert Kennedy, after having just won the California primary, is shot in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel. I just, just a couple weeks ago, spent like two hours on some random night watching ABC's coverage of that evening. And, you know, it's so eerie, especially since you know the outcome. Two quick questions. Questions. One, how did Lyndon Johnson react to Kennedy's death? And two, in your mind, do you believe Robert Kennedy would have won the presidency in not only the nomination, but the presidency in 68? Well, starting with your first question, Johnson reacted coldly and strangely to the assassination of Robert Kennedy. When Kennedy had been shot and was clinging barely to life in, in the hospital in, in California, Johnson was demanding updates again and again from his aides. And he put it in that typically crude Johnson fashion. He kept saying, is he dead yet? Is he dead yet? And one of his advisors, I, I interviewed him when I was working on the book, and he said, I was just really disturbed by these conversations because it, it seemed almost like this was what he wanted to have happen. He didn't really believe that that could possibly be true. But but that was the question that in his own grief, this advisor felt like he wanted to shake the president and say, why are you asking this question this way? Is this something that you want? And so Johnson just seemed unable to connect emotionally to the moments at all. And even though he kind of made the, the motions to appear that way, it, it wasn't particularly convincing to anybody around him. He did recognize that he, and he spoke about this not long after that he would forever be caught between two mythologized Kennedys, both of whom were, were cut short by an assassin's bullet before they could either fulfill their, their true promise or run into the big obstacles that presidents do. And so people would forever wonder what might have been if only JFK had lived or if only Robert Kennedy had lived and had become president. And Johnson, the book was closing on Johnson. He had had his shot at being president and it was a very mixed bag. I mean, some profound, profound achievements from the Civil Rights Act to the Voting Rights Act to the Great Society to environmental reform to the Elementary Secondary Education Act and so many other things, but the Vietnam War and the riots in the cities and that Johnson would never, he understood, be able to stand up to the mythology that existed now on either side of him. To your last question, would Robert Kennedy have won? I believe he would have won. I mean, I think this, this is one of these questions you could probably argue it all night. But my feeling about this is, is fairly straightforward. I think Robert Kennedy, having won in California, was going, as he said, to go on to Illinois and he was going to win there and that he was building momentum. He had left McCarthy behind, that Humphrey was sitting out a lot of the primaries and trying to line up party support. But I think the more momentum that Kennedy built on the way into the convention, the harder it was going to be to deny him that nomination. And 
And I certainly think that he would have beaten Nixon in 1968, uh, that he was a much stronger candidate than the compromised Hubert Humphrey was. And let's remember that Hubert Humphrey, who was tied to Lyndon Johnson in this unpopular war, Hubert Humphrey, who was kind of a terrible candidate himself, almost beat Richard Nixon in 68. That when he finally separated himself, yes, he finally separated himself and announced the bombing halt, that he began to climb in the polls. And that according to people who studied these things, not me, but according to the numbers, folks, if the campaign had gone on another three or four days, that the trend line was in Humphrey's favor and he would have beaten Nixon. Maybe, maybe not. But I, I think Kennedy would have been unburdened by any of those problems and would have really been changed candidate in a way that Humphrey could not possibly have been. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Jeff, are you ready? I'm ready. What was your first job? My first job was working at a record store in Denver, Colorado, where I grew up, working the register and stocking the the bins with new LPs. All sounds very old school. And in fact, (laughs) I guess it is. What was your first this? I guess this question, your answer leads right to this next question. What was your first concert? My first concert was Sticks in 1981. Paradise Theater? Paradise Theater Tour. That's right. At McNichols Arena in Denver. (laughs) Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Gosh, great question. That's a that's that's a tougher one than the first two. I will say that one of my favorite books, uh, and certainly in the the field that we're talking about here today, is a memoir by Harry McPherson, who was uh, an advisor to Lyndon Johnson, and in his later years, a, a good friend to me, a wonderful human being, and a beautiful, brilliant writer. Wrote many speeches for LBJ. Worked on that speech that you've quoted from the end of March 1968, that withdrawal speech. Harry was known as the poet of the prairie. And he wrote a memoir called A Political Education about arriving in Washington in the 19, from Texas in in the 1950s, going to work for the majority leader and ultimately vice president and president. And it's a masterpiece and is as great an introduction to the politics of that period as you will find anywhere in any book. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Wow, this is a good question. I guess I'd want to go uh, a little farther back. I think if I could step into Independence Hall in 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 seventeen seventy six or or even seventeen eighty seven and and be witness, you know, for example, to the Constitutional Convention and and just witness the founders and, and the framers mid discussion in in shaping our Constitution and our nation. That's probably what I would choose off the cuff, and probably even after some thought too. I think that's probably the most frequent answer. Is it one really of those? One of those two? Yeah, pretty much. I'm trying to think of. It's either that thing. or it's either that or, or going and seeing the Beatles at the Cavern Club in '60 or '61. <laughs> I would have a tough time <laughs> choosing between those two. <laughs> I'm going. I'm going to England shortly, and the Beatles store will be a stop yet again. I go there every time. <laughs> oh, every time great. that I can. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record to discuss whatever you want, whom would you choose? Gosh, anyone living today. Boy, that's a that's a tough one. I'm just uh, I'm scanning the, the globe here to think of who who that would be. That's a tough one. I, I think, you know, picking up the theme of our last answer might be Paul McCartney. I can't think of a, a more delightful conversation or more fascinating conversation than the one you might have with Paul McCartney. He was just 
mentioned by two people, I think, on the podcast as as someone they would want to talk to. Sometimes it's either Paul McCartney or or the Queen of England. May I know with all due respect to the Queen, I'm not sure what kind of conversation <laughs> that would be. And I, you know, Bob Dylan crossed my mind too, but that seems like there would be a lot of there'd be a lot of awkward silences in that conversation. I was gonna say, doesn't he mumble? Like I'm not sure how you'd understand him. <laughs> yeah, but let me throw let me throw a name out there and then I will end the podcast on this note. But I was a little surprised, if I may say, without judging you because Paul McCartney, how can you go wrong? Ethel Kennedy. I am an enormous fan of Ethel Kennedy. And I will say that I one of the great privileges of having worked on this book was the chance to to get to know Ethel Kennedy. And over the years, uh, have have gotten to spend some time with her and have have a number of conversations with her. And, and she is just a tr- just a tremendous and generous human being, full of energy and fun and just a great spirit. So she should be she should be on the list. That's that's for sure. She in 2008, she came to Indianapolis for the annual Kennedy King Day that we have at Kennedy King Park, just north of downtown. And my former boss, Indianapolis Mayor Greg Ballard, spoke and I was on spring break in Florida. But he said, you write this speech for me. I wasn't even really working for him at the time. And I said, sure. And I wasn't there. And I wish I would have been because I would have broken the speech writer's code. Because after the speech, Ethel Kennedy went up to Greg Ballard and said, thank you very much, Mayor. Those were the most beautiful words I've heard in a long time. Wow. Wow. That's phenomenal. And the all credit goes to her and her humanity and just all that she's been through in her life. She's an incredibly strong person. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been Jeff Cecil, who has written a terrific book on 60s political history. It is called Mutual Contempt, Lyndon Johnson, Robert Kennedy, and the Feud That Defined a Decade. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a real honor and a treat to get a chance to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Robert. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Strategies.com.